Good morning, everyone. I'm so pleased that we as a church are doing this sermon series on the book of James. And it's my prayer that the Lord will open our eyes to the important truths that this epistle contains. So let's read together James chapter 2 from verse 14 to verse 26. It comes with the heading, in my Bible at least, Faith without works is dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word that teaches us and instructs us today. Lord Jesus, we remember your prayer. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, sanctify us by your word. Help us to change. Help us to become better people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a little bit of context. And I'm going to move on to some important theological issues. And then I'm going to deal with what I believe is the critical message from this portion of Scripture. So just on the, on the context. Now, we don't have absolute certainty about a lot of stuff uh, just regarding the circumstances around the, the New Testament, when particular letters were written, sometimes even who wrote them. Um, but one thing we can be pretty certain about actually is that the author of this book as Piers already explained is the younger half-brother of Jesus. By that I mean that that uh, he's, he was Joseph and Mary's son. Of course Jesus was the son of Mary and the son of God um, and he grew up obviously in a very Jewish uh, culture. Uh, John makes clear in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him until either very late in his ministry or more probably after the resurrection. But James certainly made up for lost time. And after the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that James had a special visitation from the Lord Jesus, he, he effectively assumed the role as the de facto, de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. So in those early church years, from the early 30s to about the mid 40s, it's important to understand, and this is the context of this letter, is that the church was entirely Jewish believers. 
So it was really in the context of Messianic Judaism. And you can see that, you can see that in, in this letter because it's addressed to the 12 scattered tribes. Now, why were they scattered? Well, because persecution arose. In the early to mid-30s, it was Saul, later Paul. And in the early to mid-40s, it was Herod Agrippa. So these Jewish Christians were scattered around the Roman Empire, but probably mostly concentrated in Palestine. And James writes to encourage them. Now, it's important to understand again that this is almost certainly the very first letter uh, of the New Testament. So up until this point, Jewish Christians had, they had no material. Some of them wouldn't have been present, present for the ministry of Jesus. And they had no gospel to refer back to. James, of course, even though he may not necessarily have been a believer, he would have accompanied Jesus and been around for many of his teachings and many of his miracles. And that's reflected in the book of James. But what I want to make clear is that, firstly, this is written in very much a Jewish context to Jewish believers, and it's written to Jewish believers that are still figuring out things like justification by faith. Paul's great letters of Romans and Galatians hadn't yet been penned. Um, and these, these, Christians were still, these Jewish Christians were still quite immature and really needed the encouragement that, that James was going to give to them. Um, so in regard to that, um, that key theological issue of justification by faith, let's read about that now in verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now the first question that James poses here is hugely relevant. This is the major theme of the text and in fact probably of, of the whole epistle. The simple answer is that faith that produces no works is of no use at all. It's worthless, but we'll get to that later. In regard to the second question, let me address this in the general context of can faith alone save us, uh, rather than that faith which James is speaking about, which is really dead faith. We'll get back to that in a moment. Now, it's interesting that just three years ago was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now, the five foundational doctrines of the Reformation are known as the five solas, or solus. The, the, the Latin word sola or solus means alone. And these five doctrines can be summarized as follows. God has chosen and acted to save us by his grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the truth of scripture alone, and for his glory alone. The interplay between grace and faith is neatly summarized in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul writes, we have been justified by faith. So let us be very clear that when it comes to salvation or justification, and the two mean the same thing in this context, that we are saved through faith. Um, our works cannot in any way contribute to our salvation. That is the mistake that the churches in the region of Galatia made. And that's obviously why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. In particular, they were beginning to embrace a, an heretical teaching saying that it's not just faith, but also by the works of the law, the Mosaic law that one needed to, to be saved. And Paul writes the letter to the Galatians to address that particular heresy. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, he, he emphasizes it's not a result of works. So having established that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let's take a look at verse 24, because this is the key verse that is sometimes perceived to be in contradiction to what much of Paul writes. 
What can James possibly mean when he says that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? In answering this question, I think it makes sense to substitute the word works for fruit. So then it would read, you see that a person is justified by fruit, the fruit of his faith. This complements Paul's consistent message throughout his epistles in regard to living by and in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, as in Galatians chapter 5. But let's go to the words of Jesus to confirm James' key point that faith that does not bear fruit is dead. In fact, it may never have been alive in the first place, but was rather stillborn out of worldly grief rather than godly repentance. And Paul draws the distinction between those two in 2 Corinthians. So Jesus very famously said in John 15, and he addresses here this false notion that true faith can exist without works. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then if we go along to verse 8, he says, by this my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Faith must be fruitful, otherwise there is no place for us in the vine. Jesus wants us to live lives of increasing fruitfulness. In five of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, he starts by saying, I know your works. He particularly commends the church in Thyatira because their latter works exceeded their former works. In other words, they grew in their, in their fruitfulness. He, he also warns the church in Sardis that they are close to death, if not dead already, because their works are incomplete. He reminds us that he searches our hearts and minds and that he will give to each one according to our works. That's in chapter 2, verse 23. Towards the end of the book of Revelation, we are told that the church itself will be clothed in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds or works of the saints. At the end of, our, at the, end of the age, it'll be our good works that complete our faith and complete the preparation of the bride of Christ for her marriage to the Lamb. Just like the faith of Abraham and the faith of Rahab were completed by their works. Let's turn to the practical application of James' message and how we respond to his challenge to show me our living and active faith by the works or the fruit that our faith produces. And it resonates so beautifully with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In terms of practical application, I only have one doing point. But before getting to the doing, I want to say a loud amen to the word that Matthew preached two weeks ago about hearing. He highlighted the urgent need to plant the word in our hearts and water it and that there can be no spiritual growth nor increasing fruitfulness without the hearing and doing of scripture. Sarah Bennett said it so brilliantly in our reading plan. Let us not be flippant in reading and hearing the word of God. Let it spur us onto action. The point of God's word is to bring freedom, life and fullness. It is living and active, not merely an assortment of words randomly put together. It is the primary way of discovering more of who Jesus is, 
becoming more like him and leading others to him. We need to lean in and actively listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying and do what it says. On to my one point in regard to doing. Let's go to James chapter 1, verse 27. James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's look at the context of this verse. It's a time of affliction. Enough said, the same word is relevant for today. Let's look at the intended beneficiaries of what James calls pure religion, widows and orphans. This is a bit of a lost sheep analogy or maybe a Black Lives Matter moment. Of course, all the 100 sheep in the parable that is recorded in Luke chapter 15 are equally important. But the shepherd left the 99, not in the sheep pen where they could be secure and warm, but he left them out in open country so that he could go and look for a single lost sheep. And of course, all lives matter. So it would be more accurate to say that black lives matter too. But it's sometimes appropriate to prioritize one group over another. And that's exactly what James is saying here. He's saying it's, it's not that the men should be neglected. It's not that white lives don't matter, but that there's a special situation where there's a particular group that needs more attention. And in this situation, it's the women and children, the orphans and the widows that, are, that, are, that were in the greatest need and are still in the greatest need. And they need more attention. Look at the shameful situation of gender-based violence and child abuse in our country. Or even the marginalization of women's gifts and voices in society. And even, and sometimes especially even, in the church. And when we look at the composition of our middle-class urban churches, we might notice that the norm is the traditional family setup of mom and dad and kids. But when I visit churches in our rural areas or our townships, I see mostly women-headed households, single moms and grandmoms, doing their best to raise their kids and their grandkids. And maybe the single moms aren't widows in the classic sense that their husbands have died, but they've been abandoned perhaps, and they are financially and emotionally and spiritually neglected. Isaiah 58 speaks of a yoke of oppression that the people of God need to break. And it seems to me that such a yoke exists in our society and that women, particularly those in poor communities, are bearing its oppressive weight. Let's also not make the mistake of judging our neighbors in poor communities and seemingly dysfunctional societies. And let me make this point very clearly that none of us is perfect. And if we have happy, well-adjusted families, then it's by God's grace and by God's grace alone. So let us not say that someone else's lack is the consequence of poor decisions or inadequate faith. That is the poisonous fruit of the so-called prosperity gospel. Let's also not make the mistake of thinking that we cannot learn from our poorer neighbors, that our ministry to widows and orphans will be one-way traffic. I am convinced that we can all grow in wisdom and knowledge and favor and unity by engaging more deeply with those that are different to us. In the context of single women, I'd also like to highlight that James very deliberately singles out the faith of Rahab alongside that of Abraham. Now remember I said this 
this is written very much in the context of, of a Jewish church. James is a guy that grew up in the Jewish faith and he recognizes Abraham as, as the father of his faith. So Abraham is up here on a pedestal, but he elevates Rahab to, to that same height. And, and he highlights this woman, a prostitute and a woman on the fringes of society. But she put her faith and her trust in God. And not only that, but she acted on her faith. And she was counted worthy to be adopted into the family of God, to be brought into the nation of Israel. And not only that, but she became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And if of Jesus, then of the author of this epistle as well. This was James' great, great granny. So widows and orphans need our help. What can we do in response? James provides the answer in a single word. Visit. To visit means to leave our comfortable homes and make a journey to spend time in someone else's home, someone else's context, even if that home is in much poorer circumstances. To visit, to visit means to listen and to encourage. Listening is a gift that anyone can give. Each and every one of us can give the gift of listening. Ask the question, tell me. Tell me about your story. Tell me about your journey. Tell me about your lived experience. Tell me about how you think about the world, how you read this passage of scripture, how you understand the gospel. And then to encourage. To encourage means to propel the forward momentum of, of others with immense gratitude and joy that we get to be involved in God's plan for their lives. We get to co-labor with Jesus in helping someone else see that her creator, her father sees her as someone that is special, valuable and precious and has an amazing plan for her life. To visit also means to give of our time and to show empathy. To visit also means to provide material help in the form of food and money. See what James says in verse 16. What good is it if one of you says to a brother or a sister that is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the material things needed for the body? Answer, no good at all. Such faith is useless. John makes the same point in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Allow me to paraphrase. This is how we know what love is, that he poured out his life for us. So we also should pour out our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But if some of you that have worldly goods see a brother or a sister in need, but shuts up his heart to him, how on earth is it that the love of God dwells in your heart? My little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love by talking the talk. Let us love by walking the walk. There are so many ways that each one of us can get involved in the doing. One of them, by the way, is our, is our grace giving program. Helena and Susie, Tabisa, Nomonde, Nadia, Lorraine, and many others are blazing a trail here. But they can't do the work of the ministry in Zola and Solaris Pass Village and Kailicha gastro, further afield in Adelaide. They can't do that work on their own. They need the help. They need the body of Christ to come alongside them. Ask God to show you where there is an opportunity for you to get involved. The pandemic is passing and lockdown is lifting. It's time for most of us to venture out of our foxholes 
and pay some visits. And for those of us who still need to stay at home because you are at risk, then there are other ways in which you can get involved. To visit also means getting involved in discipleship, mentoring, fathering, and leadership training. We have no intention of providing physical food only, but we seek to change lives for eternity providing, by providing spiritual food, by connecting people to Jesus, the bread of life. We are a church that is rich in mature leaders. We have fantastic discipleship resources. My prayer is that God would use us effectively to help others grow in their faith. I titled this message, Faith plus Fruit equals Friendship with God. James makes the point in verse 22 and 23 that Abraham was called a friend of God because of his faith and because his faith was completed by his works or the fruit of his faith. Let me add another F, favor. Proverbs chapter 3, 3 and 4 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let's throw in another F for never falling. Peter wrote in, one, in 2 Peter chapter 1 that if the qualities of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, if those qualities are ours and they are increasing, then we will not be ineffective or unfruitful. And if we practice these qualities, we will never fall. Do you want to be a friend of God? Do you want to grow in God's favor? Do you want to never fall? Then be fruitful and be increasingly fruitful. We can all do more. I can do more. You can do more today. And I promise you that there's no better way to live. There's no richer, more satisfying, more fulfilling way to live than to live generously. As Paul said, and I'll close with this, in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, by working hard, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. <music>